1: Engine running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome.
2: Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. Things. What that essentially means is. Discovery is advances, questions, Research. Technology.
3: Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is The Naked Scientists.
2: Hello
4: and welcome to the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine. With me, James Tipco. Coming up, can civil engineers help rescue the UK's crumbling schools and hospitals? Also ahead...
5: I certainly feel that sepsis robbed me of the first six months with my my newborn daughter and that's something I can never get back.
4: We'll be hearing about a new initiative that is hoping to improve the treatment of sepsis. And a bit later on, how the scent of ancient Egypt has been replicated in a Danish museum. All that and more coming up here on The Naked Scientists. Reinforced Autoclaved Aerated Concrete, or RAC, R-A-A-C for short, was used as a cheap, lightweight building material between the 1950s and 1990s. Many public buildings across the UK, and indeed the world, contain it. But questions have been raised this week as to its safety. Some schools containing RAC have been forced to shut their doors over fears that it poses a risk to children and their teachers – And hospital bosses have also warned that they are ready to evacuate workers and patients in the event that any weakened concrete shows signs that it is at risk of collapse. Chris Goodyear is a professor in construction engineering and materials at Loughborough University and has been conducting research on RAC.
3: RAC is actually quite well named and that every letter is important. So it's reinforced, it's got steel reinforcement in there and that's what gives it the structural capacity or the strength. It's autoclaved, which means uniquely it's baked at pressure and temperature in an oven when they make it. Aerated, it means it's got air in it, which makes it lightweight and a good insulator. And it's concrete, so there's nothing particularly different or fancy or strange about it from a concrete point of view. It's got cement in there, and it's the cement that makes it hard.
4: You would suggest that it has some particular weaknesses as opposed to traditional concrete, when it comes to exposure to the elements. And that's the root of why alarm has been sounded in some of the public buildings in
3: this country. Yes, to a degree. So I I probably need to set a couple of things straight. So you're right on that point. Because it's aerated, it can soak up water more than traditional concrete. And if left unattended or unaddressed, it can get to the steel inside sometimes, sometimes, and start to corrode that. It's a very low strength compared to traditional concrete, and that is fine. So when you're designing it and you're building it, you know it's got low strength. It's the steel reinforcement that gives it the strength. So the fact that you can crumble it and break it quite easily is fine. Similar I described to wood and timber, which we build lots of our homes out, you can break a piece of wood over your knee if it's thin enough. Kind of. So what? The other thing is the 30-year design life. This is also something that isn't true, but has got out there everyone's consciousness and they're talking about it no building lasts forever and no building material lasts forever steel concrete timber bricks so we design them with a we call it a typical design life of 30 to 40 years that that means we expect around the 30 40 year mark we need to look after them maintain them and if we want them to last longer probably remediate them repair them prolong their life a bit this has kind of got out there that It lasts for 30 years, and hence, at year 31, it collapses. But that is simply not true.
4: I think that's the key point, isn't it? It's not so much the issue with the material, but the way it's been used or left unattended. Why has it all come to a head right now? And why are we scrambling to survey not
3: just schools and hospitals, but now courts and even parliament? A couple of reasons. The the country in general... And and most countries don't spend enough on maintaining their, their infrastructure and their buildings. The maintenance of a building is, is a fairly easy thing to reduce the budget on short term because for the next six months, a year, people wouldn't really notice. If you do this year on year and year on year and decades, then you will notice. And instead of just spending a bit every year, it gets to a point where you have to spend a lot. And we found in our research is that in some of the rack panels, the biggest worry is that they can look okay. So when you look up at the ceiling, that looks fine. You can't see many cracks, but it looks okay. But 50 years ago, it was possibly manufactured poorly or installed poorly by the builders. And kind of poor building it is no new news story. Every country in the world, you will find some builders who don't do it as well as they could. So this happened with the with, with Rack. And it's gone unseen and unknown about till now. But in, in our investigations, there, there is some rack out there that a structural engineer considers critically unsafe. And you made the the key concern
4: uh, apparent there, which is you can't always tell from looking at it. How do we address this in the short term? Or what's the timeline for where all that critically unsafe
3: rack will be identified? Million dollar question in a way. Uh, hospitals now are in a good place, but there's a relatively small amount of hospitals. Schools, 22,000, as, as we know. Big variety of location ownership and building type. So that's a very different challenge. They're making progress, maybe not fast enough, but but they're getting there. But then you've got all the other government departments, including I'm speaking to the Foreign and Commonwealth Office tomorrow. The MOD I talked to, uh, uh, you mentioned Justice Police I've been to an ambulance station that had rack in the roof and then there's a private sector offices and factories and commercial properties from the 60s and 70s. So timeline this will be years. I think we're moving to a situation of living with rack as a country, uh learning how to look after it because we can't get rid of it quickly and it'll be years before we we'll probably get around the whole of the estate. I think it's probably fair to say, you
4: might disagree, that we've kind of offered a lukewarm defense of rack as a building material. You know, it's something that in the right context can be used very safely, but it has stopped being used. You don't suppose it'll it'll ever be making return as a building material or start being used again, or maybe I'm ignorant and it still is being
3: used how boldly so it never went away we we got worried about it in the 80s in the uk but it's still manufactured and used all around the world in fact i'm reporting here from prague in czech republic so i'm attending the seventh international conference on aac on autoclave aerated to comic there's people all around the world here including china india indonesia manufacturing rack and installing it now still thousands of factories around the world so It comes back to where I started. There's nothing wrong with it as a building approach. You Design it properly, manufacture it properly, and install it properly, it'll be fine. Cut corners, cut costs, do it wrong, it can fail. Coming back to the UK, I think we've gone too far now with public perception that you'd have to be a kind of very bold builder to try and do it in this because no one one would want you to, I think.
4: That was Chris Goodyear. We're going to talk about sepsis now, which is a life-threatening condition that occurs when an immune response to an infection turns on the body itself. It can cause damage to vital organs and it kills around 50,000 people in the UK each year alone. Sepsis has been in the headlines recently following a tireless campaign by the parents of a 13-year-old called Martha Mills, who died from the illness in London in 2021. So, what should we know about the disease And what are the attempts being made to tackle it? Will Tingle has been speaking to Joe McPeak from the Healthcare Improvement Studies Institute at the University of Cambridge and Emily Perry, who survived sepsis but is living with its long-term impact.
5: I had my second daughter in August 2019. I had an emergency cesarean section and then had to have some emergency surgery afterwards because of a hemorrhage. So I'd obviously had a fairly traumatic uh, few days, and you know was feeling pretty unwell and pretty tired. But I was discharged from hospital, went home. I kind of continued to feel quite almost fluey for a few few days, a few weeks. But I just put it down to the fact that I'd had, you know, all this surgery. My body had been through a lot. And also, you know, I had a a newborn and a um, coming up two-year-old. So life wasn't exactly relaxing anyway. And then one afternoon, about three weeks after um, Victoria's birth, I was feeling really unwell. And things had gone kind of very downhill quite quickly. Um, My sister was luckily staying with us at the time. And I said to her, you know, I think something's wrong. I suddenly feel um, very shivery, but uncontrollable shivering. My temperature shot up and I was really struggling to speak. My hands and my fingers were starting to go quite numb. I don't remember too much more after that. I remember being taken in to hospital and then it wasn't really until the day after I was admitted that the diagnosis of sepsis came through. I was in hospital then for the best part of a week. Um, I was given really regular IV antibiotics, uh, paracetamol to keep the fever down. It took a couple of days for the shivering to stop and that was really frightening because I think I hoped that once I got into hospital, the medication would be an instant fix, but it was a really frightening time wondering if I could care for my baby and if I was going to even survive it. But then after a couple of days, they found the right antibiotics that started to make an impact and I started to feel better. It's not just what happens when you're in hospital. It's those weeks, months, years that follow. I had to have therapy for PTSD and I've had ongoing health anxiety. I think it's very difficult when you've had terrifying and life-threatening things happen to you to have that belief again that things will be okay and that something else like that won't happen to you. You lose your faith that things will be all right and that these things happen to other people. And that's a very hard thing to move on from.
2: So Joanne, to try and help those like Emily, the James Lind Alliance is launching this once-in-a-generation survey to ask people with first-hand accounts of sepsis what they want studies about sepsis to look into. What kinds of questions is this survey going to ask?
6: So the James Lind Alliance is going to be launching a priority-setting partnership, and this has really been spearheaded by sepsis research, or FEAT, So that's priority setting partnership. And the most important word in that is partnership, aim to identify and prioritise the unanswered questions or kind of the evidence uncertainties that as a community, they agree are most important. And this is so that we can feed into policymakers and health research funders to make sure that they are aware of the issues that matter most to the people who need to use this research. So People who develop sepsis, family members, clinicians treating them.
2: What questions are you expecting? What do you think are the the hot button issues that people are going to touch on?
6: I think there'll be a whole host. And, you know, sepsis has a big journey to it. So there's that initial part of sepsis. How do we recognise it quickly? How do we treat it quickly? There's then the part of the actual treatment itself. What's the right antibiotics to use? And how do we identify what are the right antibiotics to use? And then it goes on to almost to recovery. How do we improve outcomes? How can we help people thrive after developing sepsis And actually, some of those wider societal issues. So actually, how do we support family members as well? How do we help people reintegrate socially? How do we help people get back to work? How do we help people's mental health in the long term? So what I'm really excited about with this is I think there could be right across the continuum of care that we see these research questions coming from.
2: Emily, if this survey had existed four years prior, how do you think it would have benefited you? What sort of questions would you have liked to have asked?
5: I think it would depend very much on when you asked me. I think as I started to make my recovery, it was the obvious ones of why did this happen to me? What made me susceptible to sepsis? And and where did it come from? And is there anything I could have done to have prevented it? Was there anything that anybody else could have done to prevent it? But then I'd say now, four years on, almost to the day actually, It's looking back and thinking, well, this has been a four-year journey and I wouldn't say I'm at the end of it. How could I have been able to help myself in those six months following, the year following? I certainly feel that sepsis robbed me of the first six months with my, my newborn daughter and that's something I can never get back. And I was so anxious and so frightened. I felt like I couldn't live in my own skin and anything that could have helped me to process what had happened and understood what had happened and to make a recovery both physical and mental would have been so incredibly beneficial and I hope that this will bring about a situation in the future where mothers such as myself but also you know all other patients who suffer from sepsis will have a better journey and a better recovery as a direct result of this survey.
2: With this survey coming out and National Sepsis Week starting on September 13th as well as Martha Mills' parents coming out this week and asking for more power to get a second opinion, all of this is putting sepsis into the spotlight but for a disease that affects so many people it perhaps doesn't get the coverage that other similar illnesses do i mean what needs to be done to address this
6: so i think it's just a constant awareness raising and that sounds you know quite vague but i think it is about education and it's about educating all society but actually educating our healthcare professional cohort as well round about this I think the challenge uh, around sepsis is that sepsis can often be interlinked with other illnesses. So, for example, somebody going for surgery for a certain disease process, but then develops sepsis after surgery. So it becomes mixed up with other illnesses. And so I think that's why probably there's kind of less awareness of it. But I think it is about raising awareness at a local level about education. Young people need to know the signs and symptoms of sepsis because The reality is if we can catch sepsis early, we can improve outcomes because people get treatment quicker. And actually the the process that can often lead to death can be prevented. So I think it is about education and I think it is about raising awareness of sepsis.
5: Yeah, I agree. I think that there's obviously so many different groups of people that are high risk for sepsis you know the are very young the are very old people who've recently had surgery new mothers I think it's about identifying those groups and how to reach those groups you know I certainly think that there have been lots of mums I've spoken to who just had no idea that they were higher risk from sepsis from having a cesarean or from, or from you know just giving birth and it's having that information available making people know the symptoms and you know finding a way to reach those groups individually I think is really important
4: Thank you so much to Emily Perry and Joe McPeak for their conversation with Will Tingle. If you'd like to find out more, you can head to sepsisresearch.org.uk.
3: The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk.
6: Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound, perfect music for audio and video productions.
4: You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, James Titko. Still to come, we'll be finding out about the smell of mummification in ancient Egypt. Before that, though, London's mayor, Sadiq Khan, has announced that all children in the city between the ages of 5 and 11 will receive a free lunch when at school. It's thought that around 4 million children in the UK don't always get enough to eat – And the plan to provide a free lunch to primary school kids in the capital has been welcomed by many. This is how the top celebrity chef Jamie Oliver responded to the announcement.
2: This is a great day. You know, in one of the greatest cities in the world, it means that we have a chance to apply measurement and proof uh, and actually prove that this is something not just for Londoners, but actually that's really relevant for the whole school food system across the whole country. Based on on, on evidence of it being a good bang for the taxpayer's buck, I'm really pleased. Jamie
4: Oliver. So how might a good meal help our performance in school? I've been speaking to Greta De Professor of Developmental Psychology and Director of the Healthy Living Lab at Northumbria University.
7: When your stomach is empty, a hormone called Motlin causes it to contract, causing hunger pangs. And your blood sugar level dips and your stomach produces another hormone called ghrelin, which activates neurons in the hypothalamus region of the brain that tells you you need to eat. And that actually divides attention between the learning tasks that the child or the adult is engaged in. The other part of that is whilst the brain weighs only about 2% of the whole body weight, it uses 25% of the total body glucose. In other words, glucose that's absorbed into the blood is is distributed to the brain cells to provide energy to the brain. So it's logical to follow that children who have not eaten either before school or skipped their school lunch, who may well be from food insecure households, are A, not able to concentrate and B, do not have sufficient fuel inhibiting working memory and sustained attention that are essential for learning.
4: Mm. So that's the theory. I suppose the question that follows is what's the evidence base that that is what's happening in schools across this country and indeed the world
7: there's numerous sources of evidence In terms of uh, breakfast clubs at school, there's quite robust evidence that skipping breakfast is detrimental to children's learning. And that's probably because that research for researchers is relatively easy because you can do it outside of the school system and you've fasted the night before. So you can actually have really good controls on what food is in the body, i.e. breakfast breaking the fast it's actually in, in, in the term itself. The complication in terms of school food is it also depends, as well as actually whether you eat or don't eat, it also depends on the types of food that you're eating.
4: It's very so interesting. So being hungry, first of all, is not good for attainment. But being full doesn't mean being full of the food that's best for learning. I mean, the phrase school dinners in this country evokes the historical image of turkey Twizzlers and chips, what we now refer to as ultra-processed food or UPF these sorts of foods are unlikely to be good brain food.
7: Correct. So you need to bear in mind here that the main macronutrients of food are carbohydrate, protein and fat. And carbohydrates are the sugars and starches found in bread, cereals, fruits and vegetables, and are the main constituents of most breakfasts and often most packed lunches as well. In recent years, attention has been looking at what we call glycemic index. So high glycemic index carbohydrates as seen in foods such as white potatoes, white bread, are often also referred to as simple or quick-releasing carbohydrates, and they're quickly converted into glucose, which results in a rapid and high increase in blood glucose with a corresponding rapid decrease, the so-called sugar high, right? Whereas low-glycemic index carbohydrates, such as found in green lentils, apples, full-fat milk, are often referred to as complex or slow-releasing carbohydrates that provide a smaller increase in blood glucose and a much longer gradual decline. Now, this is interesting because when you actually map the intake of either high GI food or low GI food, it actually maps well onto um, cognitive tasks if you consume a food that has mainly low glycemic index carbohydrates, your performance doesn't increase as quickly on cognitive tasks, it's roughly about the same, but your performance is sustained for a much longer period across the school day compared to if you eat foods that are high in GI.
4: This has the promise, doesn't it, of being an extremely important leveller in that we can use the science you've outlined today to reduce the gap in attainment that we see between the poorest and richest kids.
7: Yes, exactly that. But we have to remember that these options aren't cheap. And so I think the the question is more of a political question in some ways. I think the evidence suggests in terms of stigma, in terms of increased uptake of the scheme through universalism, reducing bureaucracy costs, et cetera, et cetera, and knowing that we have a large proportion of families that are living in household food, what we call household food insecurity. The scheme makes sense and the data definitely look promising. I think the problem is, is that the cost of rolling out such a scheme, and especially when schools are facing so many additional costs, such as crumbling from concrete that was just been mentioned. So that's really a politician's uh, job,
4: a very diplomatic answer there. That was Greta de Feta. Now, researchers at the Max Planck Institute have recreated one of the scents used in the mummification of an important Egyptian woman called Senet Nye, more than three and a half thousand years ago. Will Tingle has been speaking to Barbara Huber about what her team did and some of the surprising components that were used in the reenactment.
8: We did a number of chemical analyses on uh, samples we took from the embalming material. So, we first sampled the remains of the Lady Sinat Nye, took the samples to the lab, then extracted them and analyzed them with instruments such as GCMS, which is gas chromatography coupled to mass spectrometry and liquid chromatography mass spectrometry. So, what these techniques do is basically breaking down a substance, a mixture, into the individual molecules. And then based on these molecules, we could identify and recreate the original ingredients that went into the mixture.
2: So what was in the original mixture then?
8: It was a really, really rich uh, composition of different uh, substances. We found fats and plant oils, beeswax, then also a a number of different resins, for example, large resin. Then we also found bitumen, which is an asphalt-like substance, and a resin which is either um, coming from the statue trees or from uh, damas. And uh, this was a very interesting finding for us because the dama resin comes from a tree which is uh, exclusive to Southeast Asian rainforests. It was a very surprising finding for us because it's very far away from the usual realm of the Egyptian empire. So it, it kind of hinted to a really long-distance trade connection already in the mid-second millennium.
2: That's extraordinary. It's a very exotic import for the time, isn't it?
8: Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's very exotic and also like very rare for this time period. We have not found that in any of the materials from this time. It has been discovered recently in another mummification balm, but from thousand years, almost thousand years later. And so, if this would uh, indeed also be dhamma, then we would have evidence for this kind of long distance trade relationship almost thousand years earlier.
2: The use of such a rare substance in the process of mummification therefore must imply that the person involved, while not being a pharaoh, was something of an elite member of society. It's almost like today people try to display their social standing by wearing expensive, high-end fragrances.
8: Well, yeah, this is, this was also one of our questions because um, the context of, of Senat Nye is also quite extraordinary because she was the wet nurse of the pharaoh Amenhotep II and she was also buried within the Valley of the Kings, which is usually only for the pharaohs. And so we already knew that she must have been like important to the pharaoh uh, and um, have a kind of high social standing. And so we were also really interested into looking into her embalming material and see whether or not her embalming reflects her high social standing. And then finding something like these exotic resins and also the, the like, complexity of the mixture really reinforced this uh, understanding or this notion of her as a high status person.
2: Of all the substances you've mentioned so far that you have found part of this balming material of bitumens and resins, obviously they're very good at embalming things because they go hard. But is it also, do you think, a coincidence or a happy accident that they cover up the smell of a dead body quite well?
8: Yeah, that's that's an interesting side of it. I mean, a lot of these uh, substances have very strong smells. You know, think about bitumen when like uh, a fresh tar laid on a street you really smell that right or like the coniferous resins are really strong resins as well so i think this is perhaps uh one of the aspects i'm choosing that but then on the other hand as you said like the pistachio resin or the bitumen they really go hard they form like a layer that avoids the tissue getting moist and also they have a lot of bioactive properties so they're like antimicrobial insecticidal so they also avoid insects so they have a lot of different properties that are really good for preserving the body for eternity.
2: And you worked with a perfume manufacturer as well, didn't you? During this process, so any chance of it becoming something we find on the shop shelves?
8: <laughs> I don't know if this would be like a, a perfume you would like to wear, but uh, it's an it's it was very uh, very interesting process working with the perfumer because they have a very different perspective on the materials than like we as the chemists do.
4: Absolutely fascinating stuff. Barbara Huber there. And the scent she was on about will be available at the Mosgard Museum in the upcoming exhibition, Egypt Obsessed with Life, which will start on the 14th of October. And finally, it's time for question of the week. I took this question from listener John.
0: I was waiting for my flight from Durban to Johannesburg to take off. I shuffled my playlist and ELO's last train to London came on. The first lyric is, it was 9.29. I checked the time and it was 9.29. I have 493 songs in the playlist, totaling 34 hours and 19 minutes. What are the odds of this happening?
4: Well, John, what a great question. We'll try not to let you down. And I know just the person to help me. University of Cambridge statistician, David Spiegelhalter.
1: I mean, it's a beautiful story. I love it. I love it. We need to think of it, first of all, in terms of assuming the song is played. He's going to play that song at some time in the day. What's the chance of it matching in that way? Well, I mean, let's assume that he plugs into his earphones 16 hours a day. He could do. And that's about a thousand minutes. But there's 9.29, so it could be morning or evening. I'm going to allow that. So out of the 1,000 minutes in which this song could be played at that particular moment of the song, the first line, two of them would have this match. So that's kind of one in 500 chance, which is low, but not ridiculously low. I mean, the nice thing is that he observed this. And what that reveals is that actually, for all the coincidences that occur and that we notice that are so lovely, there are vast numbers that occur and we don't notice.
4: We've kind of butchered his question somewhat because the reality is he's not listening to this song all the time or he just happened to hit shuffle and this one came on. But to even begin to calculate the odds of that, we've got to consider things like how often John is listening to music and then crucially, I suppose, what songs he has in his playlist and how many of them even contain references to time.
1: Yeah, you say you've got thirty-four hours. Let's say the song, you know, last three minutes or so. We don't know how often he goes through that playlist, and so to work out the sort of unconditional probability of this event happening to him, well, you would need to have a lot more information. Yeah. The other thing which you mentioned is, you know, are there other songs that mention time? And what it reminds me of is a wonderful art exhibition called The Clock, which I saw at the Tate Modern in London a few years ago. And all it is is clips from film and television of segments that at some point will show the time. Somebody will look at their watch, the camera will spot a clock on the wall, and that time is always the time at which the film is being shown. Mm-hmm. All sorts of really obscure bits of TV and film which are just feature the right time.
4: Yeah, what an incredible project to have undertaken. Oh, I mean,
1: Just the thought of sorting through vast amounts of old films is quite extraordinary.
4: Thanks to the University of Cambridge's David Spiegelhalter. Next time, we'll be answering this question from listener Tony. I heard that
1: water that has previously been boiled freezes much faster than water which is not if true how is that possible kind regards from papua new guinea
3: tony
4: that's all for this edition of question of the week but if you've got a question you'd like us to try and answer send that or any other feedback into chris at we'll take a look And that's all we have time for. On Tuesday, it's part two of our Titans of Science interview with Helen Sharman, the first Briton in space, as she tells Chris Smith about the ins and outs of working on a space station. The Naked Scientists comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm James Titko. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye.